Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's return this morning to our study of the Gospel of Luke. We're in the 22nd chapter. Our text today, the very last pericope in Luke 22, verses 63 through 71. Now, earlier in this same chapter, we follow the Lord from the upper room in Jerusalem where he instituted the Lord's Supper to the Mount of Olives, specifically the Garden of Gethsemane where he retired for the evening to pray with his disciples. He did pray, but they slept. And uh, he prayed agonizing prayers, Luke tells us, to the Father in anticipation of the suffering leading up to the crucifixion. And he suffered alone in prayer that night. And when he arose from prayer, he was fully prepared for the day that was before him. We didn't have to wait long for the testing because Judas was already on his way leading a mob of armed men to arrest Jesus. And upon their arrival at the garden gate, Judas identified Jesus with a traitorous kiss these men took Jesus away to the house of the high priest for interrogation, but not before Peter tried to start a war. And the Lord rebuked Peter for trying to fight spiritual battles with human means. Luke records that Peter followed Jesus from a distance, from afar, we saw last week, to the home of Annas, who was not technically holding the office of high priest, but in the eyes of the people, he was the perpetual high priest and fulfilled Jesus' prophecy, didn't he? that Peter would deny that he even knew Jesus three times before the rooster crowed in the morning. Last time we saw Peter, he was a mess. He went out, ran away, and he was in tears. And that leads us to today's text, Luke 22, verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. They blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, prophesy who is the one who hit you? They were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. And when it was day, this council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, hearing of his word. Now this entire episode and what follows after it is nothing short of brutality. It's brutality, very clearly. In verse 63, we get an indication of the character of the Lord's accusers. Remember, all these interrogations and trials are a scam. Verse 2 in chapter 22 tells us the chief priests got together and wanted to put him to death. They just needed a reason. They needed a charge. And all of these interrogations were an attempt to elicit Jesus to self-incriminate. And he refused to play by their rules. He is, after all, always sovereign. Verse 62, he says, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking 
and beating him. That's the first indication that they were willing to do illegal things to get what they wanted. Remember, this was um, the highest court in the land that they were about to go before, the Sanhedrin. They had their own rules of conduct. There was etiquette that had to be followed, and they dismissed all of those rules in their haste to kill Jesus. They can't help themselves from attacking Jesus physically. They put a blindfold on him and made fun of him. They know that as the Son of God, he knows all things. He is omniscient, in other words. And so uh, they punched him with the fist, the Scripture tells us in the other Gospels. And they said, which one of us punched you? And all the time they were beating him with their fists, they were lambasting him with verbal insults, blasphemous insults. All of this together says this is nothing short of brutality. And there's some irony here. We've been seeing irony throughout the passion of Jesus. The irony here is that the gentle and humble Savior of the world is being treated brutally and with arrogance. Jesus was and is gentle and humble. He describes himself in those terms in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Their treatment of Jesus was anything but humble and gentle. There was both physical and verbal abuse. We can follow the pattern of physical abuse through the four gospels. It's well documented. Here they punch him with their fists. Later they spit upon him. They whip him within an inch of his life with the scourge. Then there's the crown of thorns that was placed in his brow, another means of mocking him. And then there's the cross itself with its uh, brutal nails and incredible pain. But there's another kind of abuse that Jesus suffered that we don't often talk about, and that's the verbal abuse. Scripture says they were hurling insults at him. You hurl things that are intended to hurt or kill. You hurl a spear. You hurl a knife. You hurl a grenade at someone you're trying to do away with. And that was obviously the design of their, wor their words were to tear down and to destroy. Now, you remember what your mother taught you, right? Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can never hurt you. And with apologies to your mother, she's way off base. Words do hurt, don't they? In fact, in some sense, words are more painful than sticks and stones and can inflict more damage. James tells us that in his epistle in chapter 3, verse 5. He says, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our body's parts as that which defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. His point is that the tongue is small, but it can destroy nations and has destroyed nations, I would say. And so to Christians, I would say, Lord, help us to guard our mouths from brutalizing one another with our words. Scripture says those who are biting one another, I take it with our words, be careful that we don't consume one another. May our aim be that of Ephesians 4.29. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. But if there is any good word for edification, according to the need of the moment, say that so that it will give grace to those who hear. In other words, when a Christian speaks, it ought to be thoughtfully. We ought not to speak first and think later. 
And our words ought to have purpose before them and behind them and during them. And the purpose is to edify. You know that a building is sometimes called an edifice. That's an easy way to remember this verse. Speak those words which are intended to build up rather than to tear down. Well, these men were not trying to build up Jesus. They were trying to destroy him with their fist and with their words. So after all the abuse of Jesus, both physical and verbal, they enter the next phase of the interrogation. And that's the title of our, today's, our, our message today is Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Now, this trial is noted for three things. The hypocrisy of the accusers, the prophecy of the Lord Jesus, and the clarity of the facts. And we'll see all three of these aspects. Now, I use the uh, singular noun, trial of Jesus, but the truth is this trial had six phases. It was a plurality of trials. Remember, the first interrogation after Jesus was arrested, he was taken to the house of Annas. Remember, Annas had grown wealthy as the high priest. He had a large house. It had a big courtyard, and this is where this first interrogation took place. The other gospel writers tell us that from Annas, he was taken over to the acting high priest's house, the man Caiaphas, who was the son-in-law of Annas. And it may very well be that uh, these two men shared a house. In the ancient world, particularly in Jewish aristocracy, the patriarch of the family, in this case, which would have been Annas, would add rooms and additions onto his house as his children married. And it may very well be that this second interrogation that the Bible talks about in front of Caiaphas was in the same place. But it was two separate interrogations. So you had the interrogation by Annas, Caiaphas, and now this third one before the Sanhedrin. And of course, the Sanhedrin, as we'll see in two weeks, sent Jesus to Pilate because they wanted to kill him. And they didn't have the authority of capital punishment because they were subjected to the Romans. The Roman governor had to sign off on it. And so they took him to Pilate. Pilate knew he was innocent. And to wash his hands of the affair, he found out he was from Galilee. Jesus was from Galilee. So Herod was in town, whose jurisdiction was Galilee. He sent him over to Herod. Herod sent him back to Pilate. You put all those interrogations together, Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod, back to Pilate. That's six different trials that take place in a matter of five or six hours. That's brutal in and of itself. But the thing we see about this particular trial is its hypocrisy. Look at verse 66. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to the council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask a question, you will not answer. When it was day. Mark that in your Bible. Highlight it in some way, because there's another example of hypocrisy. Jewish law demanded that an accused person had to be tried in public and in the clear light of day. No secret trials. Well, they had violated those two principles already. And so their hypocrisy is brought to bear that when the sun comes up, they say, well, we're going to do this trial in public and in the clear light of day. And so it says they called together the council of the people. And we know that this was called the Sanhedrin. Every Jewish city in Israel had a council of elders who judged the people. Now this concept likely goes back all the way to the times of Moses. You remember when Moses led the Hebrew children out of bondage in Egypt. 
They were out in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses was trying to adjudicate every disagreement himself. And it was wearing him to a nub. And his father-in-law took him aside and gave him some wise counsel. He said, Moses, this people is too great for you. Here's what you do. You divide them up into smaller groups and put judges over each of the groups. And the cases that they can't settle, then you can handle those. And you know probably that almost every system of jurisprudence in the world is based on that kind of appellate process where you have local officials who judge local cases and they can be appealed up the ladder, and in our case in the United States, all the way up to the Supreme Court. Well, in the Jewish law, they had local Sanhedrins, and if it was a small city, they had fewer numbers. In larger city, larger numbers who sat on the Sanhedrins, but they judged these local cases, and there was always an odd number of judges so that there was never a tie. And they had clear codes of conduct and principles that they had to abide by. And in Jerusalem, there set what was called the Great Sanhedrin. It would be the equivalent of the Supreme Court. And those who had proven themselves worthy at the lower levels aspired to be on the Great Sanhedrin. It consisted of 70 men plus the high priest for a total of 71. And they gathered in a room adjacent to the temple called the, the room of hewn stone. And everyone knew where it was and uh, knew when they met. Uh, this group of 70 was comprised of priests, those from the tribe of Levi, and those whose daughters were qualified to marry priests. And they were addressed as rabbis. And they met in this room, I said it's called the chamber of hewn stones. Um, this is well documented. And I don't have time to, to give you all of their rules of conduct encourage you to research that on your own and you will find out dozens and dozens of ways in which they violated their own rules. This was an illegal trial. This was really a murder. It was an assassination. And here is probably the greatest irony that these men, when they set up their rules, they were designed to prevent an innocent person from being convicted. Now, I believe we have the greatest judicial system on earth here in the United States. But it's been well documented that from time to time and sometimes more frequently than that, the innocent are convicted of crimes they did not commit. And it's a tragedy every time it happens. And the Jewish code of laws was designed to be both a, a judgment but also to be merciful. If they erred, they wanted to err on the side of mercy because they feared, their greatest fear was convicting an innocent person. Now here's the irony. The only truly innocent person that ever lived, they convicted and put to death. Now, if you've ever been accused of something you didn't do, that's painful, that's hurtful. But the truth is, even if we're accused of a particular act we did not do, none of us are truly innocent. Romans 3.23 says that we all fall short of the glory of God. Now, Jesus is not in that category. He's altogether different and holy. He is the only truly innocent person that ever lived. And here is the highest court in the land, supposedly comprised of the 70 wisest men in the nation that God has chosen alone out of all the nations of the earth to represent him, perpetuating the greatest act of treachery and injustice the world has ever seen. 
Now, Jesus had been dealing with these men and their kind for several years, all throughout his earthly ministry. And what we find here is that even through this injustice, Jesus never lost control. And so when they began to interrogate him, if you are the Christ, tell us. He said, if I tell you, you won't believe. If I question you, you'll not answer. Why? Because they've been trying to catch Jesus in this trap for years. Even as, as recently as that week, three different times they had come to Jesus as he was teaching in the temple, trying to catch him in this trap, something they could take to Pilate and accuse him of that they could put him to death. And in each case, he answered a question with a question. For example, do you remember they asked him a question about what authority he was doing these things in? And he said, I'll answer that question if you'll answer me this question. Whose authority did John the Baptist operate in? Because he knew if, he, if they answered him publicly that John the Baptist wasn't under the authority of God, the people would turn on them because they loved John the Baptist and recognized him as a great prophet. But if they said he was a representative of God and a true prophet, Jesus would have asked them, well, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you repent? So what did they do? They did what they always did when Jesus questioned him. They closed their mouth. They would not answer him. And Jesus knew that's exactly what would happen in this case because he had the right under their own laws to give a defense and to ask questions in return. So he says, if I told you, you won't believe because he knew their hearts. And if he tried to answer his their questions by asking them questions they would not answer. So it was fundamentally flawed and unfair process and Jesus wouldn't play along. And so it was mere hypocrisy, pretending to care about justice when the sentence had already been laid out. But that leads us to the next thing here we see in verse 69 is that is the prophecy, the prophecy specifically of Jesus about himself. Jesus continues speaking, says, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated on the right hand of the power of God. This is Jesus speaking from his office as, as prophet. And by the way, these men knew the Old Testament, and they knew instantly that Jesus was referring to the book of Daniel. We keep coming back to the book of Daniel, don't we? That's why we studied it last year. So uh, I tell you, you just hold your place there in Luke, and I'm going to go to Daniel for us and read the exact reference he's talking about, and it's Daniel chapter 7. You remember that Daniel had these series of visions, and in this particular vision that's being interpreted, he saw one monstrous creature after the other coming to the earth. And these creatures, we're told, represent the various world empires and systems. Starts out with the Babylonians, which gives way to the Medo-Persians, which gives way to the Greeks, which gives way to the Romans. And then there's one final kingdom, and then the Lord's Messiah comes. And so verse 12 of chapter 7, Daniel says, As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. This is what Jesus is alluding to. He says, from now on, up until this time, he's been the suffering servant, right? Humbly going about his business, riding into Jerusalem on the humble foal of a donkey. He says, from now on, you're going to see the real me. You're going to see my glory 
The son of man, that's his favorite designation of himself. Jesus went by a lot of names. We could do a whole study on the names of Jesus. But Jesus' favorite way to talk about himself was this one, the son of man. He identified so closely with humanity. Yes, he was the son of God, deity in every way, but he was also the son of man, human, tempted in every way that we are. And so he says, you're going to see me seated at the right hand of the power of God. They knew to be seated at the right hand of a king was to share his authority, to have the same authority as him. And that's what Jesus was saying. I have the same authority and power as God the Father. And so how do they respond? Verse 70, and they all said, are you the son of God then? They knew that's what he was claiming. And they thought they had him. This is what they've been trying to get all the time, this, this accusation of blasphemy. And of course, Jesus is in control. And I don't ever forget that. I try to remind us of that every Easter, and I'll do it again this Easter. Don't ever think of Jesus as anyone's victim. There's always this great debate around the Easter, the Easter season as to who is most responsible for the death of Jesus. Was it the Romans? Should we hold them responsible? Was it the Jews? Are we being anti-Semitic if we say it was the Jews? And come close and I'm going to tell you who is responsible for the death of Jesus. Jesus. This is why he came. He understood that. Let me put a little finer point on it. The book of Isaiah says it pleased the father to crush the son. This was his purpose and plan is that through the death, burial, and resurrection, he would bring, Isaiah says, many sons to glory. Now that does not excuse or acquit either the Romans or the Jews, or any of us for that matter. All of us share in that blame. But God is so sovereign that he takes the sinfulness of men and superintends that sinfulness and uses it for his purposes, namely to save the lost. And that's what Paul means when he says all things are working together for good, those that love him. Even your sin is being used by God for his glory, and that is incredibly sovereign. And so as a sovereign God who knows the end from the beginning, Jesus prophesies that from this point forward, you are going to see me seated as the Son of Man at the right hand of the power of God. And so now he begins to bring clarity to the situation. This trial, particularly this moment, is known for its clarity. They all said, are you the son of God? And he said to them, you say correctly that I am. And they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves with our own mouth. Another translation, when they asked him, are you the son of God? He said, yes, I am. There could be no doubt. Jesus was affirming their accusations. Christians, we need to be clear when we talk about the gospel. We have the privilege right now of having three young men in our church who are training for their ordination as pastors. And any young man that comes before our church and says he feels led to be a pastor or preacher is taken through a year-long curriculum with me. And uh, right now in that curriculum, uh, we have finished the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, and we've seen the high standards that the Bible has for any who would be a pastor. And now we're talking about philosophy of ministry and particularly of preaching. 
because one of the tasks of pastors is to preach and to teach the Word of God to, to God's people in the church. And when I talk to not just those three young men, but with any young man who says they want to be a preacher, I give them this advice, and that is to aim at clarity rather than profundity in their preaching. Here's what I mean by that. A lot of people think that good preaching is someone who gets up and has a huge vocabulary and never makes a grammatical error and wows people with his intellect and with his eloquence. There's another group of people that thinks a good preacher is one who amazes people with their personal charisma and charm. He's relatable, he's likable, he tells funny stories, he keeps me interested and entertained all the way to 12 o'clock. While those things are not disqualifiers from being a pastor, it's not a bad thing to be eloquent and have a good vocabulary. It's not a bad thing to keep people's attention or even to use humor occasionally. Those are not nearly as important as the primary task of any pastor, which is to make the meaning of the text clear, to make it known so that people can respond to it in the appropriate manner. And here is Jesus speaking prophetically, and he's being incredibly clear. And there were times in Jesus' ministry where he was purposely vague or opaque. He didn't want the Pharisees to understand his meaning. And he would speak in parables. And then he would explain the meaning of those parables to his inner circle of disciples. But in this case, he wants to be absolutely 100% crystal clear. He says, yes, I am the Messiah. Now, there are those to this good day, some of them claiming to be Christians, who would say Jesus never claimed to be God. That that was something that was foisted upon him by his followers after his death. Don't you believe it? The theme of the Gospels is Jesus is God. The book of John, for example, John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. All things created by him and through him. Nothing has been created that has been created except through him. Those are the words of John. These are the words of Jesus. He claims to be the one who sits at the right hand of the father, who has the authority and power of God. They knew what he was saying. And so they asked him, are you the son of God? And he said, yes, I am. Am because Jesus was in control, they weren't. Many times they had tried to catch him and arrest him and kill him, and each time he got away because he knew it was not the time. Now was the time, and so he allows this to happen and causes it to happen. He's in control. Now, what can we learn as Christians? This is historical narrative. It's Worthy, I think, to just study historical narrative for the historical value. But when we study the scripture, it's also that it might change us, that the Spirit can take the proclaimed word and change us, and as Christians, sanctify us, and as unbelievers, to draw us to saving faith. There's three things I think that we can make application on, at least. Number one, this entire scene reminds us of the breadth of Jesus' sovereignty. The breadth of Jesus' sovereignty. Jesus is altogether God, isn't he? And in this case, even 
how sinful these men were was not enough to overwhelm his sovereignty. All of these things happened according to his schedule and according to his timeline. You remember when the announcement of Jesus' birth came in Luke chapter 2, it was in the fullness of time. It's when God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the eternal trinity, and the secret counsels of the Most High determined the right time for Jesus to come into the world as an infant. And all of his redemptive plan unfolded until this moment when it was time for his arrest and ultimate crucifixion. And so what we can gather from that, if God has been in control of history up until that point, he's still in control of history today. So we don't have to worry or fret about what's going on in the world or what might happen. We know how the book ends. Jesus comes for his church and establishes his kingdom on earth and we rule and reign with him forever. And so the breadth of Jesus' sovereignty is clarified, I think, in these verses. Secondly, the depth of man's depravity is revealed. If you go to seminary, you'll learn a term called total depravity. It means that every part of us is touched by sin that we in and of ourselves can do nothing truly holy because we are totally depraved. Now that doesn't mean that every person is as sinful as they possibly could be. God in his grace gives us some fences that keep most people from being as bad as they could be. But occasionally there will be a person or a group of persons who goes past those fences and we think of them as particularly sinful maybe a serial killer or a person like Adolf Hitler or Charles Manson. And so here's what we do with people like Hitler and Manson and Stalin and you fill in the blank with the person you think is most sinful. We say those people were monsters. You ever heard someone on the news, the man on the street interviewed to, to talk about a serial killer? This guy's a monster. And do you know why we use terms like monster and demonic? because we don't want to believe that we have the capacity to do the same kinds of things. And so we put those kind of people in a different category of particularly sinful. We're not capable, we think, of those kind of things. What we have on display here, remember, these are not people off of death row that have been brought out to judge Jesus. These are the people who everyone else thinks are the most holy and the most capable of rendering justice. And they put to death the most innocent person, the only truly innocent person, I should say, that has ever lived. And if they're capable of that, so are we, because we as humans share in that depravity. And the depth of man's depravity is on display, not only in Luke 22, but throughout the passion of Jesus. But here's what I'm so thankful of. Even though the depth of man's depravity is on display, at the cross, the height of God's glory is on display that he's not a sinner like us, that he's altogether different and holy, and he's a merciful God, full of grace and slow to anger. That's why Jesus says, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God, that one day everyone is going to recognize who Jesus is. Isn't that what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2? He went on and on talking about the condescension of Jesus, how he emptied himself to take on the form of a servant and 
suffered death, even the shameful death of the cross. But he didn't stop there. He says, but one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of things in heaven on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what I mean when I say the height of God's glory is on display, even in the words of Jesus. And so Christian, be reminded of some things here. We ought to always, always shiver and repulse when God's good name is used to perpetuate injustice. Always. Because what happens when God is called as a witness when there is injustice is that who he really is is obscured. And a lost and dying world can't understand that he is the only truly just entity in the universe. And so we ought to battle injustice and we ought to be against it and speak against it at, at every opportunity. And when we're called as a witness, with God's help, we ought to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And not just in a court of law, but when we're speaking to one another and about another person, we ought to never brutalize another person, even with our words. Now, most of you would never raise a fist, or you think you wouldn't, against an enemy. But sometimes when we're on our computer alone late at night, we're capable of brutalizing other people with words, not always spoken, sometimes typewritten and sent over the internet. Brothers, that ought not to be. What does Paul say in Ephesians? That we ought to say those things which are good for edification. Measure your words. Be thoughtful and prayerful before you speak. Because when we speak things that are exaggerated or altogether untrue, we obscure the glory of God and give people an impression of God that's not true. And we can see from this passage that's a serious offense. And so may the Lord guard our lips, guard our hearts, and guard our minds. Most importantly, if you're lost here today, you see that Jesus is not just a man. And he made the claim that he's not just a man. He claimed to be the sovereign God of the universe. And if Jesus is the sovereign God of the universe, he makes claims upon your life. If he's your creator, you owe to him your allegiance. You owe submission to him. And that's what he's calling you to do. He's not satisfied that you think Jesus was a neat guy or that he was a martyr or that he's someone that we ought to pattern our social systems upon. No, he's not satisfied with that. He's not impressed with that. Jesus is saying clearly he is God. And as God, he calls you to confess your sins, repent of those sins, and follow him. Are you willing to do that today? Are you willing to, to give up everything else you've been depending on in your life, come to God on his terms, and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner? If you are, he'll never turn you away. I can't find one instance in all of Scripture where a person came to Christ on his terms that he said no. On the other hand, not only is he merciful and slow to anger, he's also a righteous judge. And if you steadfastly and stubbornly refuse to bow to him, even with a mountain of evidence that he's whom he claimed to be, 
you fall into the category of the Sanhedrin claiming to be interested in justice, but truly hypocritical, unwilling to follow the obvious truth. Friend, I don't want that for any of you. My prayer is that everyone in this room understands not only the historical Jesus, but Jesus in his glory. He is God who one day will judge the living and the dead. Let's pray to that God. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that uh, as the eternal second person of the Trinity, everything that is true about the Father and the Spirit is true of the Son. He's not a lesser emanation of God. He is God. He makes that claim very clearly here in Luke chapter 22. And sadly, rather than causing this Sanhedrin to bow their knee to his lordship, they doubled down on their hypocrisy. They doubled down and continued in a pattern of behavior they knew to be illegal and unjust. And Father, I fear that there's some in this room who come to church week after week. They know the facts. They're undisputed, and yet they willfully, stubbornly, like the Sanhedrin, refuse to bow their knee to his lordship. Paul is very clear in Philippians that one day everyone's going to bow. But for those who bow in this life, it leads to eternal life. For those who wait until judgment, it's everlasting too late. So, Father, I pray that uh, everyone in the sound of my voice, if they haven't already, will submit their lives completely and totally to the Lordship of Jesus, coming to Him on His terms, not their own terms, forsaking anything else other than the grace of Jesus manifested through His death, burial, and resurrection. And Father, for those of us who are Christians, help us to determine today to use our speech and our tongue for edification, not to tear down even our enemies, Lord. Jesus told us to love our enemies, do good to those who harm us. May that be true in every aspect of our life, especially as we interact with other Christians. Father, I pray now as we go home and dwell upon, meditate upon this message today that the Holy Spirit would guide us each as individuals to areas of our life that need improvement and change. And Father, give us the strength and the ability then to follow you more completely because of it. And we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.